Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the director of the Global Summitry Project. You can find all of our activity at globalsummitryproject.com. Let me just mention some of the most recent efforts we've been working on. One is the uh, current research being undertaken by our Centennial Journalism Students in the StoryWorks project. These journalists have been interviewing um, journalists uh, from abroad, uh, speaking about uh, and interviewing them on the pre on press freedom and threats to the press uh, uh, and to journalists in particular. Uh, also, um, there is a continuing research on the China and the West uh, Dialogue Project that you can find at the website, and also some research we've been doing on Agenda 2030, and of course, put our podcast series, and let me turn to that now. It's my great pleasure today uh, to introduce to you um, uh, Eve Tiberjan who we're welcoming into the virtual studio. This is Shaking the Global Order, Series 2, Episode 10, an interview with Eve on China's dilemma in the face of Russian aggression in the Ukraine. Eve is the D Director Emeritus of the Institute of Asian Research at the University of British Columbia, UBC, and he is currently the Professor of Political Science and the Kanwaki Chair in Japanese research at the University of British Columbia. He's also a distinguished fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada and uh, the Canadian uh, PAFTAD chair. We are actually uh, joining with Eve today uh, while he is uh, currently in Paris. He is uh, currently uh, the visiting professor at the Paris School of International Affairs. So it is my great pleasure to uh, introduce Eve to our uh, virtual studio. Uh, on February 4th, as you know, Russia and China signed an agreement, uh, a partnership, I think is how they described it. I may get the Chinese wrong translation on that, but that declared that the country's friendship had no limits. The leaders struck deals first on oil and gas and then uh, pledged in a joint statement to provide new leadership at a time when power is shifting in the world. It, all, uh, it also openly opposed any expansion of NATO, and which, of course, is a, has been and continues to be a central demand from Russia in the standoff with the Western, in particular with the Ukraine. So let me ask you, uh, Eve. Uh, did this uh, partnership signing give Putin the comfort he needed to launch the aggression against Ukraine? And what do you think he made Xi Jinping aware of what the future was back in February on February 4th, meaning what was to occur on February 24th? Um, mostly no. Uh, but, you know, of course, we will only gradually know all the details, right? Uh, so far, there's a lot of scholars that have written, a lot of uh, policy people have written about this, mm -hmm. and there's, there's a range of views. But what is um, striking is we know that for Xi Jinping, the priority was not this document. I mean, in a sense, the Chinese did not need this document. 
What they needed is Putin at the Olympic ceremony. Uh, so for Xi Jinping, that's what he wanted, right? He mm -hmm. wanted uh, some policymakers because of faith, because of ritual and Chinese culture and all this, and and his own legitimacy before the party congress. Mm -hmm. And um, and we know that they mostly met at the ceremony. Putin came only sh for a short time uh, on a day trip, no, right. no stopover. Um, and um, and so we also know that the declaration was, uh, you know, the pen was in the Russian hand. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the Russians who, who spearheaded the writing and mm -hmm. who published it, apparently to the surprise of the Chinese, because it was first published in Moscow in Russian. And then there was no Chinese version for quite many hours, which is unlike what the Chinese do with the Americans when they publish it before the meeting is over. Right. Which is crazy. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of interesting stuff around that declaration that that mm -hmm. is not fully. We often exaggerate. Right. The other thing is many uh, writers say, oh, it's a very long declaration. They have so much to say. 20 pages. Well, it turns out uh, 18 of the 20 pages are harmless. Right. This is U.N. stuff, G20 stuff, biodiversity, climate change agreement, you know, uh, U.N., uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. So all kind of blah, blah, blah. And then there's two pages that are interesting. Actually, it's one page and one paragraph, one page in which they jointly say that they're fed up with being criticized for being a non-democracy. Mm -hmm. So. It's often taken out of context. We tend to say, oh, they're fighting against democracy. Actually, what they say is only each country should be, uh, should be left to decide what they are. And we state that we are democracies <laughs> and no one has the right to judge us. That's the essence of that page, right? So it's kind of, I see it as very defensive. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, um, and then the other paragraph, which is toward the end, is this no limit partnership, right? Uh, that they declare, uh, which is not specific in any way and doesn't mention Ukraine anywhere. There's no Ukraine in that declaration, right? Uh, and there is indeed uh, the support of Russia for reunification with Taiwan, and there is uh, a sentence uh, where China expressed concerns about the enlargement of NATO uh, mm -hmm. affecting the security interests. It's not opposing, but it's concern uh, affecting the security of Russia. So that's what it is. And as far, you know, it, it doesn't seem to make much sense for China to need this, right? Uh, so my own version of my own interpretation of it is that China cared primarily about getting put into the Olympic Games. Uh, and then the bureaucrats kind of worked with the Russians on writing this text, you know, beforehand, before the summit. Uh, apparently, as far as we can see, there was no time for Putin and Xi to have a one-on-one -on -one even. So there was not much discussion about it. We also know that there was no military official that went, at least that we know, that went to China. It well, was only with foreign Putin. affairs with Putin. Yeah, on the Russian side. Yeah. With Putin. It was foreign affairs and trade. Those are the guys who went uh, mm -hmm. to Beijing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the other part of your question. It's very unlikely that there was any detailed discussion of military uh, operations in any way. Uh, mm -hmm. The people were not there. The chief of staff were not there. There was no military meeting. Uh, and unless new information come out later, but to the best of what we know now. Um, now, it's likely that Putin mentioned that there will be some operation. 
And it's likely that it was not at all detailed, that it was very short, because that would not be the, the way the Russians deal with China, because they don't want the Chinese to say, wait, wait a minute, it's dangerous, don't do it. Um, and several scholars have said those things, right? Do, do, uh, yeah, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's likely that China misunderstood the scale of what it would be. Uh, they may have thought it was more something like 2014. Right. Um, so if sure. Eve, mm-hmm. if they misunderstood uh, or certainly were not let in, that is the, the mm-hmm. Chinese and Xi Jinping in particular, was not a, let into the scope of the um, uh, 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 action by Russia, which emerges on the 24th, uh, how do we understand then China's stance? It's neutrality toward the combatants and its willingness to see the war which it stated as a product of the threat posed, in other words, the Russian line, as a, as a product of the threat posed by NATO uh, to Russian security. What, you know, what, 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 how do we understand the Chinese positioning on this thing? Yeah, so the, the fundamental position. So first of all, there are multiple interests within China, right? Uh, and, and different interests espouse different components. But essentially what Evan Feigenbaum has written, and he's right on this, is that the Chinese are trying to do three things at the same time. Mm-hmm. They want to they uphold their principle that they have upheld since the 1950s on, you know, at the UN in foreign affairs of intervention and all this. Mm-hmm. They, you know, at least the foreign ministry wants to keep that line. Then uh, the economic ministries, economic interests want to maintain the global integration with the West and globalization. Uh, you know, they have so much trade. Trade is 28% of the economy. It's all global and it's the globalization is, is essentially dominated by the West and all, uh, you know, the dollar system is US based. Uh, and then the third is the security interest side, you know, when it comes to probably the national security people and the more hawkish people, they care more about uh, they they see themselves as vulnerable to the U.S. They feel under attack from the U.S. They feel the U.S. wants to stop their economy, wants to stop their growth, and they feel very embattled, right? They feel always vulnerable and threatened. And, and so for them, uh, having Russia at their back, uh, alive and well, is important. That is, if Russia falls apart and is destroyed by the sanctions, that's not in their interest. So they're worried about that. Uh, for the security people. And as far as we know, those voices are coming out. Different voices come and we see different. Sometimes we see the economic people talking. There is a, you know, a secret leak of a Zhurongji letter yes. that criticizes very much the Chinese position for being too neutral. Mm-hmm. But also what we do know is Xi Jinping has personally invested in the relationship between him and Putin. And he has more or less leaned or pushed the system toward the security interest recently. So it's, it's a neutrality that's leaning toward Russia. Um, and politically, when Xi Jinping meets uh, you know, online uh, different heads of states, he's still giving a very hard line. He's talking mm-hmm. about colonization. He's talking about you know, the West has mistreated Russia, has not respected the security interest. He's still pretty hawkish and following a Russia line in the you know, in a speech Mm-hmm. And he's kind of pushing it down through the propaganda system. However, at the same time, 
the AIB and the New Development Bank, the Brinks Bank, have frozen any loan, have actually stopped anything with Russia, even the Brinks Bank, right, which normally should include Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. Most companies are sanction compliant. They're not breaking sanctions. As far as we okay. know, there is no export of weapons. And there is a commitment by China to the EU and probably to the US to not export weapons. Uh, so it's a complex line, right? It's kind of supposed neutrality, uh, speech-wise and UN-wise, leaning toward Russia, but mm-hmm. in practice, avoiding to do anything that would cross a red line with the West. That's this very strange juggle that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So... Um you know, I guess the the, the, the kind of follow-on question is, um, if the military actions continue, um, is the focus then for Xi Jinping and his reactions really guided in part by the upcoming uh, 20th Party Congress, that the way, you know, he sees um, the positioning he has to take as fitting within uh, that kind of framework? Yes. Uh, and actually, the current period is worrying in China uh, because, you know, traditionally, when, when I teach Chinese politics, Chinese governance, we always look at the different interests, the different ministries that always compete with each other, their provinces versus center and interest group versus interest group. There's quite a bit of pluralism. And because of that, you know, the whole Deng Xiaoping period and even early Xi Jinping period, there is always a bit of a crab walk. One day they liberalize, one day they do some SOE, pro-SOE steps, one day they, you know, they decentralize, one day they recentralize. There's a lot of tug of war going on within policymaking, but also flexibility that goes back to Deng Xiaoping. Seek truth from fact, he said. Um, but this year, we see more rigidity in several domains. Mm-hmm. Uh, case in point, the response to COVID and the management of Shanghai and Omicron. That's yep. an extreme stubbornness that is uh, making life extremely painful and difficult for the middle class in Shanghai and is leading to anger among the middle class in Shanghai, Beijing, and other big cities. That's new. We haven't seen that. Until now, the middle class is happy. This time, the middle class is angry. And yet, the system is rigid and is pushing in. And it looks like on Ukraine, while they're careful not to fall into a trap, uh, Xi Jinping is hardening somewhat the, the speech and hardening the propaganda system, uh, you know, repeating the Russian story to the Chinese public. And so they and that's all related to the party Congress. We do know that there are voices, uh, you know, behind that are not mm-hmm. happy with this, uh, that think this goes against the Chinese national interest. But currently no one can speak up uh, safely. So it's a very odd political period uh, with a lot of tension. And this rigidity, I take it, is because um, Xi Jinping himself cannot see himself as admitting a mistake uh, in terms of foreign policy, let's say, with respect to, with respect to you know the situation in in Europe and in particular the Ukraine, is this, is it all about you know being seen to be, you know the leader and the leader doesn't uh, you know whether it's COVID, or or the Ukraine, the leader doesn't make mistakes, right, and the party follows. Right. So there's definitely something like this because there has been so much centralization of power Mm -hmm. that no policy debate 
can be a pure policy debate anymore, especially in the year leading up to the Congress. It's always about uh, the power of different actors and the power of Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if a majority of the Politburo came to say, I think we should not, we should move a little bit on Omicron, it would not be just a decision the way it was always in the Politburo under Deng Xiaoping or, or his successors. It would become a defeat for, for Xi Jinping personally. So things have become too personalized. And indeed, it becomes about power, it becomes about leadership. And it seems we see this rigidity, which, which uh, you know, goes against the, the strengths that was shown by the bureaucracy or by experts, right? Uh, they override, right now they, they're overriding whatever expertise could come. Mm-hmm. Um, a second factor possibly would be, you know, during the year leading to party Congress, they work a lot on theory, just like they did this whole declaration on history. They do... You know, there is a lot of utopia in the way in the Chinese system, and the leader, uh, you know, projects a vision of history, a vision of order, a vision of <laughs> what should be very theoretical, mm-hmm. and and the facts have to fit, and if they don't fit, then you double down. Um, that's that's exactly the kind of thing Deng Xiaoping used to criticize. Uh, yeah, yeah. That you have to go back to facts. Mm. Do you think? Uh, do you think then? You know, often the what comes out of Washington, what comes in some cases out of Europe, is this notion that you know China is seeking uh, global domination. Do you think they're getting it wrong uh, when they characterize it as such, as opposed to understanding? more about what the dynamics are within the party and the dynamics within the domestic domestic politics of China are. Right. Uh, I mean, in general, we are in a complex, fast-moving world, and it's essential to, you know, to show cognitive empathy or understand the drivers of policymaking in each setting. You know, the mm-hmm. same applies to India, the same applies to EU. The, uh, and if we apply... Western frameworks uh, or frameworks derived from Western experiences um, and or follow ideology, again, rigidity, uh, it's not going to lead to a good understanding of what the actions of the other sides are. Uh, and in, in, you know, in turn, doesn't lead to good policies toward that other side. And so in this case, um, when we study the visions of China, emerging out of China about the global order, uh, whether they're scholarly vision, they're different, you know, they're different scholars uh, battling it out or different tradition or different you know, ancient political thoughts or the preferences of key ministries, whatever you name it, but studying from inside, uh, they, there is no tradition and no uh, development of something called global domination. Uh, domination of the global, that, that's something that has only come out of the West with colonization. Um, okay. Now, there is a sense of, of hierarchy. You know, that's very Chinese. Hierarchy, or we can call this domination, but it's regional. So at the regional level, yes. But they tend, you know, the priorities for the leadership in China, and it's always been like this and it's still like this. Uh, number one is legitimacy at home. Whatever mm-hmm. you do, project legitimacy. So if you have Olympic Games, you need leaders to show up to buttress your legitimacy and you'll invest in that. Then there is the safety of the of the realm. So that's why they're so harsh on what they perceive to be their borders and their sovereignty. And that includes Taiwan. Um, right. Right. Then there is 
the periphery that they consider, they've always considered to be uh, very close to them and partially sinicized, and they have expectations toward that periphery, you know, from Korea, Japan, all the way down to Southeast Asia. And mm-hmm. of course, the periphery, so-called periphery, is not happy about it. So there's no question. Here, yes, there is a sense of hierarchy and the sense of China being big and expect the small ones to follow. That That's correct. But beyond that, um, they have discovered that they need to play a role in global rulemaking, but they expect that to be a multipolar system. The theory we read out of Chinese political science is, is always multipolar for the global system. They want to be at the table. They, they are pushing back against unipolar decision from the others, but they don't have a sense that they will be unipolar in deciding the rules of the world, right? Um, they also... You know, the, and then when it comes to economic investment and all this, it's more looking for resources for the capitalist economy. Uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's capitalist driven and it's uh, linked to the growth of the economy. Uh, but there's not a plan for global domination. At least it's not fledged now, right? That's what I would see out of China. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an important r- reframing of what often is uh, perceived to be by many out of out of the United States and some in Europe as this notion of Xi Jinping seeking domination, right? Global, global domination. So let's turn uh, for the last uh, elements here, um, uh, Eve, to uh, Europe and China. And uh, it's a good idea. Um, uh, you uh, uh, you're in Paris right now. You're teaching. Um, so uh, uh, at, at Sciences Po. Um, uh, you, I know, have been following very closely European foreign policy, including uh, figures like uh, Joseph Borrell, who is, of course, the high representative of the European Union to foreign affairs and security policy. And in writings and speeches, which I know you're very aware of, Borrell has, you know, indicated just, you know, how difficult uh, current relations between the EU and uh, China have been. Um, you know, persistent problems EU companies face in accessing uh, uh, the China market, the sanctions uh, against uh, EU officials by the Chinese, expansion of uh, disinformation uh, campaigns, a variety uh, of things. How does the um, Russian aggression against Ukraine impact on the EU-China relationship? And in particular, Given that they've had a recent summit, how did that kind of impact on the consequences or the outcomes of that summit? The impact is big, um, and there is great uh, cognitive differences. And it looks like the the Chinese side has not done its homework understanding the EU. So just like we say sometimes, the West doesn't understand China. In this case, they clearly don't understand the EU. They have misunderstood two things. Because when they prepared their summit, they were ready to just, just do a bilateral summit talking about common mutual interests in trade and whatever. And right. they, they didn't think Ukraine mattered uh, in the EU-China relation, right? That's their position. And for the EU, they just wanted to talk about Ukraine for three quarters of the time. <laughs> uh, and the Chinese had not seen this coming, or at least pretended not to or whatever. Um, so th- that was pretty fascinating. 
Um, and they make two mistakes. The first one is they misunderstand how existential the Ukraine war is for the EU and for every European. It's right. at the border of, of Europe. It's part of Europe. It's a future EU member, Ukraine, and it's bordering all the EU members like Poland and Hungary and all this, right? Um, and so it's profoundly existential. And for the neighbors like Poland, you no, know, a very important EU member, this is this is totally existential. This is... They're fighting for their own survival together with Ukraine, right? Right. Uh, and so China missed that completely, how critical that is. And then second, they also missed how the EU just had a critical moment with the Ukraine war. They came together. This is the, the birth of geopolitical Europe, the way the EU describes it. Mm -hmm. It's the first major geopolitical hard security crisis war where the EU is speaking in a unified way. All 27 members... I've made collective decision. The first time that the EU level is buying, you know, almost 2 billion euros of weapons and sending them to a war zone. The EU has never done this, never had a mandate to do security like this. Hmm. Uh, you know, all everybody is speaking together in connection with the EU and any EU member, even the Austrian chancellor, when he went to, uh, to see uh, Putin, in which he did last week, he, he briefed all the EU members and ambassadors before and after and was closely coordinated. Macron has closely coordinated anything he did as well. Uh, and this is new. We have the EU coming together as a foreign policy uh, power, global power. And China has missed that. Uh, doesn't get that, you know, this is the moment now where the EU is coming together because it's an existential threat. Uh, Putin has unified the EU like never before. Uh, and as connected the EU is NATO like never before. And of course, in close partnership with the Americans. So there was, there was a lot of misunderstanding and Xi Jinping, uh, you know, gave a strong position on, uh, you know, like you should not bully Russia, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and then he went off. Uh, but then the summit continued, uh, with the prime minister. And in the end, with, in that part, there was more, uh, a more, um, you know, a cooperative approach. There was a I bit see. of movement on the Chinese side, right okay. beyond the stood. Um, but yeah, uh, the EU is very concerned by the rhetoric. They're watching the actions and the words from China. For sure, the actions, nothing has crossed the red line yet. Right. But for the rhetoric, they're not happy with it because they hear things that are shocking, right? That are, uh, you know, when people are dying and being massacred and entire hospitals are being bombed and, you know, they they don't see that sensitivity on the Chinese side and that worries the EU. And, and they speak, they repeat what Russia is saying. Really? In a way that shocks the EU. Mm -hmm. It shocks the EU. Right. Well, I, he, I have he, a concluding go word, ahead. by the way. Yeah. One important concluding word is, you no, know, China is very worrying uh, in many ways, right? We know uh, extreme human rights violation in, in many places like Xinjiang and the like, and in this case, yes. it's Ukraine. But one thing that the EU is aware of, and it's not the US not always aware, mm -hmm. is that um, China is not like even Russia, right? China is 19% of global GDP. It's an enormous, enormous country, 1.3 billion, 1 billion people. And so we need, you know, the West has to be smart. That is, on one hand, we have to do all the defensive actions to protect our own territory, our economy, our values and everything. On the other hand, we need to watch to still have 
a degree of coexistence and ability to cooperate on global systemic issues like climate change. Because if we go to all out Cold War with China, this is not a world that we're going to like. You know, so it's, it's very easy to drift all the way to conflict with China on the hills of Ukraine. Uh, But we have to watch that most of the South is not voting with us. India is not voting with us either. And so the West has to be very savvy here in being very strong in protecting Ukraine and protecting our values, but being aware that we need to maintain a channel of communication and coexistence. If we don't want to enter a world that we're going to hate in the future in 10 years. Yeah, and I take it you know you're reflecting on um, the uh, Human Rights Council vote, the suspension of Russia, in which you saw yeah. uh, quite a number of yeah yeah that Africa Africa didn't, for instance, support um, its uh, the suspension of Russia. The numbers are right. are significant, uh, right. you know, so that there clearly isn't just a everyone kind of following in on the European Union position or the American position vis-a-vis the Ukraine. Right. Well, it's been a real pleasure. And I, I got to ask you, you're in Paris uh, right now and will be for the next 10 days. Any thoughts on uh, the presidential election, which is coming up uh, very shortly? Um, Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I do know is the stakes extremely high. Yes. Um because the two projects between Macron and Le Pen are very different, uh, right. very, very, very different. Uh, the Macron project we know more about because it's kind of continuation. The Le Pen project would be a combination of extreme nationalist policies with some very, very leftist policies that would lead to very strong conflict with the EU, including putting the French law above above the EU law right. and also trying to use, to force the use of referendum to change, to abrogate the constitution, even though it's not, it's against the constitution to do that. So she wants a conflict a constitutional crisis uh, and use tools that are exactly the tools that Orban is using and others, right? So the stakes are extremely high for democracy in, in, uh, in France and for the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, Macron has made these mistakes as well, being a, uh, uh, not always ready to listen to the people and listen and show empathy with problems at the or or showing you know lack of consultation. Uh, but you know the the polls so far sh- leaning toward Macron between fifty three to fifty six percent. But uh, you know it's too close to call. It could All go right. either way. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we will watch it closely. Clearly, has in- in- enormous likely um, uh, impacts on uh, the EU, on relationships with the rest of the world. So Lord knows um, it will be a a critical vote, to say the least. But thank you, Eve, for uh, joining us. We really appreciated it. And uh, and thank you uh, in general for your focus on on China. That's been uh, very helpful. 